This episode is sponsored by The Artist JD, a place designed to add ease to the legalese of running your creative business. If you're a maker, designer, or shop owner, then you should consider joining The Artist's Courtyard. It functions as your creative business's legal guide, mentor, sounding board, and resource library. Seize dream opportunities when they arise because your business is built on a strong foundation. Visit theartistsjd.com to learn more and use the code WALSHINAPS at checkout to get 50% off your first month. Thank you so much, The Artist JD. And now, here's the show. to episode 141 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about becoming a professional quilter with my guest, Amy Friend. I have the pleasure of visiting Amy's studio today in West Newbury, Massachusetts. We live about 45 minutes away from one another, and it's always so nice to be able to visit somebody in person. So I'm very glad to be here, Amy. Um, Amy Friend is a former museum curator turned designer. She designs unique modern quilts and specializes in paper piece designs. She's authored two books, Intentional Piecing from Fussy Cutting to Foundation Piecing, which came out in 2016, and Improv Paper Piecing, a modern approach to quilt design, which came out a year later in 2017. Both were published by Lucky Spool Media. Amy travels to guilds to speak about her quilts and teach workshops. Her home is a mid-19th century Massachusetts home formerly inhabited by a comb maker, shoemaker, and Morgan horse breeder. In her free time, you're most likely to find Amy in the garden, baking or driving her three children to activities. You can follow her creative path on her blog, DuringQuietTime.com, or on Instagram at during quiet time. Amy Friend, welcome. Thank you for visiting me. Yeah, it's really nice to be here. And I'd love to start by talking a little bit about where we are. So if you can tell us a little bit about your home. Um, I know we mentioned about its history in the introduction, but tell me a little bit more about it and also maybe a little bit about West Newbury and how you ended up here. I grew up here. <laughs> So I, I did move away for college and graduate school in the first eight years or so we were married, but then moved back to have our family here. Um, but West Newbury is coastal Massachusetts near Newburyport. People have heard of that more frequently. We're right off 95, a little bit south of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, this whole area used to be Newbury way back um, 200 or so years ago we became West Newbury. It's actually the bicentennial of the town right now this year. And um, we split off from Newburyport and became West Newbury. And it's a rural town with lots of farming still. We have four or five Christmas tree farms in town. And um, the comb industry was huge here um, about 200 years ago as well. Then we moved into shoemaking and then more agriculture. And now, of course, it's a lot of people commuting into Boston or Cambridge or working from home. Okay. And this home in particular? This is um, a home from about 1835 to 1850. Um, we just recently had some surveys, historical surveys done in town. And actually I wrote the grant for that. I was on the historical commission at the time and our house was included in the survey. So we know that the dates were between those years and that the first inhabitant was a comb maker, which meshes with the town's history. And most recently, um, a Morgan horse breeder lived here. Um, and that's why we have a big barn out back. Um, no longer are there any horses there though. Um, but I love, I love history and I love older homes. And so I put up with the draftiness in winter and things like that, because I just love the, the feel and the history of the house. And um, so you said that Towns Bicentennial was just this year, yep. right? And you created a really special quilt for the town that was based on the motif of combs. Right. And these are like women's combs that women would kind of put into their hair as in, in a decorative way, or would they actually use them to comb their hair? It was both. So um, 
the comb industry, it, it used to be that combs were imported from England here to the United States. And so they were very, very expensive and they were tended to be made out of ivory and um, materials that weren't re- readily available here and there weren't skilled laborers here. So right up the road from me, actually, um, in 1759, I believe, um, Enoch Noyce started the comb industry and his were made out of wood that he cut with a jackknife. And they were initially just regular hair combs, like just to comb your hair. Um, one was even called louse comb, which is really gross. Um, but then they moved into creating um, combs out of tortoise shell and cow horn that were decorative for women's hair. Okay. So those are the ones I pictured in the, right. the quilt I made because yeah. I figured the other kinds of combs would not be as attractive. Don't need, you don't <laughs> no. need a quilt of no. louse combs. No. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how did this quilt come about? And there's pictures of it on your website if people want to check it out. And I'll, yeah. I'll put a picture of it in the show notes too. But um, so it sounds like the town of West Newbury commissioned you to create a quilt that would in some way commemorate the bicentennial and you kind of came up with this idea of the comb quilt. I'm just mm-hmm. wondering how this collaboration between you as an artist and the town came to be and then sort of you can talk a little bit about your process of, of coming up with the quilt. Well I mentioned to you before that this is a very small town so we all know each other. Um, so the people who are on the West Newbury Cultural Council know me and they know that I am a quilter. Um, and they, they're familiar with my work. So when they were brainstorming ideas of how they could contribute to the town's bicentennial, they put a quilt out there as an idea along with sculpture and painting and quickly agreed on a quilt. And then they asked me because they, they knew me. Um, and they were very nice because they just allowed me to take it in any direction I wanted. And I actually wasn't sure that I was going to be a good fit for them at first because when you think of a bicentennial quilt, I figured they would want it to appear historical or to have like a feeling of an earlier quilt. And I wanted to make sure that they knew that I liked modern quilt design and wanted to you know, incorporate that as well. And they were actually very accommodating, said, you know, just show us a quick mock-up. It did. And then they let me go from there. How did you explain what modern quilt design was? I mean, I think that mm-hmm. For somebody who really isn't a quilt aficionado, right, mm-hmm. who's just sort of like quilts, I get it. I know what a quilt right. is and that's about all they know. Um, you know, mm-hmm. to say to them there's a difference between a traditional quilt and a modern quilt, that might be new news to them. Right. right? And mm-hmm. so, um, I mean, they would know the difference between a modern art that you would see in a modern art museum. OK, right. abstract shapes that kind of non-representational. OK, mm-hmm. versus, you know, um art that was more representational they could see that difference and but I'm just wondering did you use that analogy or how did you explain to them like I'm a modern quilter I think that they were pretty familiar with my work already which helped okay. just because um I gave a talk at the library when my first book came out they came some of them were there um the woman who is the head of the council right now is a painter herself so she She's more in tune. She's also knows exactly what I'm working on. Um, she's my neighbor a few doors down. <laughs> um, so I did mention that I wanted to use some alternate grid work in the layout and I explained what that was. That I didn't want just a some single repeating block design that I wanted to um, change that layout a little bit that I was picturing some negative space in the background with the, the year that the comb manufacturer be, manufacturing began in, in the town. Um, I did say that I wanted to make brown combs because they did tend to be brown. They tended to be brown through like a dark charcoal. And those aren't normally colors I would work with and they don't really scream modern to me. But I wanted to use those, but choose fabrics I might choose otherwise for a quilt. So I wasn't looking for... um, Like a Civil War print or something. You were going to maybe use a solid. Yeah, like a textured solid. Right, okay. Something that would fit my, suit my taste. And then also, um, I mentioned that I would want to quilt it myself with some straight line quilting. Um, I just described, you know, what I was envisioning that I liked the idea of combs because I saw them as a really strong abstract shape. So I wanted to, you know, use the shape, but I wanted to not make it exactly, you know, an applique, let's say that might've had more detail in it. I wanted to make a simplified abstract comb shape and use it as a graphic element. 
And I think that they, they got it and they were willing just to see what, how it turned out. Right. Okay. And so where is that quilt now? Does it hang somewhere in town or how did, how did that work? It's at the library awaiting hanging. Okay. (laughs) So it will be hung in the town library, but it's just not quite up yet. Okay, great. And so you said you grew up around here. Is the house you grew up in like right nearby or? It's down the Newburyport end of the same road. Okay, (laughs) right. And um, I know that um, I read on when I was doing some research um, before I came that um, that you've said that a sewing machine table was a piece of living room furniture in your house when you were growing up. Is that that the case? Um, I was trying to think of that. We had like a little... um, my mom had a sewing machine that folded into the table and the yeah. top came over and that was next to our couch and it had like a lamp on it or something. And it was just, you know, right there in the living room. Right. So you could pop up the sewing machine as needed. Right. right. Okay. And so what did your parents do for work? Uh, my dad was a probation officer in Newburyport and my mom held several different jobs during the course of our growing up years. Um, she was originally a teacher until I was born And then she stayed home with us for a while. Um, Then she was a teacher again and brought us to the school with her. Um, So we went to the private school where she taught for a few years. And then um, she went back to school and then she started to work in the biotech industry by the time I was in college. Okay. And were either of them artists or makers, even if it wasn't necessarily their career, were they sort of doing that Mm -hmm. in their spare time? My mom always wanted to be. So I think if her parents had allowed her to be an art major, she would have been. Mm -hmm. And she was always very creative. She was, you know, she'd make things for the church fair and sew our our clothes and things like that. Okay. And so she taught you to sew? Yeah. And what did you used to make with her once you learned? Um, She was a garment sewer. She grew up making all of her own clothes throughout high school. You know, very detailed garments, like coats with plackets and buttons and um, fitted skirts with linings and things like that. And um, her mother also sewed extremely well. Um, so they both taught me. We would sew things like um, Halloween costumes or simple baby outfits that I would then maybe sell at a fair or give as gifts, that okay. sort of thing. And were you excited about sewing or was it one of these things where you sort of felt like it wasn't really your thing? I think it was just one of many things I was doing trying at the time. Yeah. yeah. It so wasn't like an was obsession. Just, no, if I wanted to make something, there was a possibility that I could sew it or I could mold it out of clay or right. I could. It was just whatever. Thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so when you went to college, where did you go to college and what did you end up? Um, you studied art history or what did you end up yeah. studying in college? I ended up studying art history up at um, Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. Oh, yeah. So I, I went thinking that I was going to be a science and art double major. And I was thinking of some way I could include academics that I really loved and art. And my brain at the time thought maybe medical book illustration, (laughs) which went out the window really quickly. (laughs) Um, Initially, I had a hard time getting into a couple of the science and art classes that I needed. So freshman year, I signed up for the art history requirement. And I took a, a class called Islamic Art. And it just clicked. I absolutely loved it. I loved studying the religion combined with art and history combined with art. And I had never taken an art history class before. They don't really offer it in high school. I I also took a lot of art history Mm -hmm. in college and um, it was really eye-opening and I Mm -hmm. loved it as well. And I had never even considered that Mm -hmm. it was a thing before I went to college. Yeah, I didn't know about it either. I keep telling my kids the same thing. Like they don't know what they want to study. I'm like, well, you might not have even learned about it. What is right? What there (laughs) is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So was, did art history end up being your major then? Yep. Okay. Yep, and did you take studio art classes too or not really? Yeah, it was It was sort of um, almost, half, well, it wasn't quite half and half. Maybe a third studio art classes were, re- were required. And then I took some more that I didn't need to. I also took a theater design class where we got to craft like costume parts and things like that. 
So cool. Are you sewing there? College is wasted on the young. That is so cool. Yeah. I know. I would love to go back to the again now. Yeah. Okay, great. So so when you graduated from Bates, did you um, get a job? What did you end up doing? Did you get a job in a museum right away? I know you mm-hmm. were worked as a museum curator before having kids. So was that your first job too? Or did you do something else for a little while? No, I graduated a semester early. And so during that semester, I worked in Rockport in one of the art galleries. Oh, yeah. Um, we vacation in Rockport years ago. It's beautiful. <laughs> it is. So I sold artwork on commission there for um, about six months or so. And then I went to the, the University of Delaware, um, where I completed my master's coursework in art history, focusing on American material culture. And then, um, then I got married. So I, I came back up and we got married. And then I got my first job in museums. So it's really, really hard to find museum work and it's hard to break into the whole museum field. And I never really had the opportunity to do um, internships because internships aren't paid. And I always needed to be, you know, getting some sort of income. Um, So I didn't have the internship experience either. So I saw a listing for an assistant to the director at the Museum of Transportation in Brookline and I applied and I got that job and it certainly wasn't what I wanted, but it was a museum job. And once I started working there, I realized that they did not have a curator. In fact, they had no one taking care of the collections at all. So I started just like pointing out, you know, what we could do and um, room for improvement. And so quickly I became their first curator. So I worked there for about five years, like building the collections care component of the museum. And then I moved to the Wheaton College um, art department where I was their collections curator. So what does that mean? Like when you were, um, when you were in Brookline, what does that mean? Like you realized they didn't have a curator and you started pointing out what they could do. Like, what are, what are some examples for people who maybe myself included, who maybe not aren't in that world and maybe wouldn't know what that actually specifically referred to. So you, you know, they had all of these objects and they were on display. So what 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 hole did you see that could have been filled better? So many things. They had um, collections care was one thing. So they had a hayloft where the items were stored. It, w- it was in an old um, carriage house, I should mention. The museum was located in an old carriage house and the hayloft was where they stored all the objects. There was no climate control. There was a lot of dust. There were some insect and rodent problems. So a lot of ways that the collections were being damaged. Um, so I started talking about archival materials and how we could better um, like package and store each item and the fact that they didn't have accession numbers, which are numbers that are given to objects as they enter into a museum collection. And you're supposed to track that object with that number throughout its time at the museum. Like if it goes out on loan or, come, or is out on display, you, you change its location in software which they, they also didn't have. So all of those things, um, forms for accepting gifts, forms for um, making loan arrangements, pretty much everything you could think about um, wasn't being done at that point. That It was more of a car club, I would say, atmosphere-wise and not a museum. Right. It wasn't really formalized. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you were helping them to sort of move into that phase of saying, this is really a museum and needs to be treated that way. Right. So it's very challenging, especially yeah. because it was mostly older men and I was right out of college. Right. <laughs> and I'm sure so. that that was your ideas were not necessarily met with open arms on no. a daily basis. Right. No, especially because I didn't want objects being touched and handled and used. And because that usually shortens their lifespan. And of course that was not what they wanted to hear. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, I, and maybe we'll talk in a little while about whether some of the, some of those skills in some way, in some sort of, I don't know, sideways way come into play now um, in, in the work that you you do. You can let me know. <laughs> but um, it's an interesting, you know, just um, you, you have to get you get a little bit tough. You know, you, mm. it's kind of helped you to yeah, um, develop yeah. a thicker skin. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, the artist JD, and the founder of the artist JD, 
Kiffany Staley. I am Kiffany Staley, and I am the founder of The Artist JD. And how does The Artist JD help creative business owners? So The Artist JD helps creative business owners by adding ease to the legalese of running your creative business. Okay. So what does that mean? I know you're a lawyer, and I know you work with creative business owners. So how do you add ease to the legalese? Uh, So the primary way that I add ease to the legalese for creative business owners is through our membership community, the Artist Courtyard, Um, and it helps add ease in four different ways. Um, You have the ability to get your questions answered through our um, online private community that's off Facebook. So you have 24-7 access to me and the members of our community. Uh, You can get ongoing guidance from me through online workshops and monthly Q&A sessions. Uh, You get access to the tools and resources you need to tackle legal projects through our legal library. We've got courses in there about registering your copyrights, creating your LLCs, and we're just getting ready to start talking about how to negotiate contracts and talking a little bit more about licensing deals. And then no one really wants to uh, do legal projects that don't actually advance their business. Um, And so I've put together a kind of legal roadmap that helps you pinpoint what legal projects will actually make a big impact in your business, depending upon where you are on your journey. Oh, wow. So this is fantastic. And is it more affordable than actually, let's say, hiring a lawyer to do some of these things for you, which can get really expensive? Uh, So there's no, I'm not providing individualized legal support for these uh, businesses in the community. And because of that, it's incredibly affordable. Um, You can join for as low as $9 a month. Right. And you basically learn how to navigate this stuff yourself. Exactly. So it's kind of designed for those who are at a point that they can't afford to pass it off, but really want to build that strong legal foundation so that they can achieve their goals, so that they can achieve their version of success, so that they can seize the opportunities when they land in their lap. Tiffany, where can people go to learn more? Yeah, so you can go to theartistjd.com and then in the header, you can see the Let's Work Together and there you can find a link to our community as well as other resources that I have available for creative business owners. Perfect. Thank you so much, Kivani. This sounds fantastic. Thanks, Abby. Thank you so much, The Artist JD. And now back to my conversation with Amy. All right. So I'm just wondering how you first got introduced to quilting, because it sounds like you knew how to sew. Mm-hmm. Um, you understood art history and art, um, fine art, um, making art yourself. And um, so you had all of the sort of uh, maybe necessary ingredients that mm. create a quilter, um, but you weren't a quilter yet. And so I'm wondering what the introduction was. Was there a specific you know, exhibit you went to. I know for so many modern quilters going to see the quilts of G's Ben was really something that turned them on to quilting. I don't know if that was the, the thing for you or if it was something else that you saw or encountered or a person that you met that you suddenly sort of realized that quilting was something that maybe you, you should do too. I wish I remembered more <laughs> now what it was, but I, I really don't. Um, my son, who's now 16, when he was born, I wanted to make him items for his nursery. So I made curtains and then I wanted to make some sort of blanket. So I think it just kind of evolved from, um, you know, the idea of making small items for, for my children. And then I was at home at that point. So I started looking online. I, I found a lot of the modern quilt blogs that were just starting like. Yeah. Um, 16 years ago, that was, that was, was really kind of, in the beginning. Right. I yeah. think they were just starting to, to pop up. And so you know, and I actually, so I worked the first few years he was born. So it was maybe 13 years ago that okay. I was really looking yeah. at the so blog. Yeah, so 2005, something. Yeah, something yep, like exactly. Because that. that's when my second daughter, <laughs> my, my first daughter, my second child was born. So I was looking at the blogs and, I, you know, I started seeing these things and I thought, hmm, quilting had never really appe- appealed to me before. It appealed to me in the historical sense. Like I wanted to know why the quilts were made, who made them, but the, it didn't interest me Um I didn't feel like I wanted to make them. I didn't like the dark colors or the um, repetition of a lot of the patterns. And it just didn't, it just didn't hit me that way. Um, but when I looked at the 
these new blogs are popping up. I just thought, oh, you know, maybe quilting could be interesting and I would like this. And so I started, you know, following some of the tutorials and learning a little bit about how quilts should be made. So um, do you remember what the first quilt blog was that you saw or that you found or how you found it? I'm just sort of curious about like how this, the entry yeah. point was like, you know, what got you to decide, okay, I'm going to Google this or right. it may have not even been Google, but how you got, how you went down that path, you know? I know I was on the Sew Mama Sew website um, and I'm sure that was part of it. And yeah. then reading like, you know, it, there were a lot of links, links to, to other people. Else. Yeah. So I'm sure that was probably my starting point. Okay. Um, and then Amanda Jean had a nine patch sew along like uh-huh. way back, at, you know, somewhere in that time period. And I did that. <laughs> and then, um, some of these sort of like a there. community, both of those are sort of community engagement where so mama. Mm-hmm. So was having guest posts from lots of different people mm-hmm. and showing their work. And then, um, a sew along where you can, I know everybody can participate maybe link up or yeah. post on Flickr or something like that, what you're making. Yeah. And, and I got into Flickr very quickly because yeah. that was where it was at. Yeah. <laughs> at the Flickr point. was where it was at. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you would participate and everybody would mm-hmm. post their pictures and see what everybody else was doing. Yeah. Yes. Right. Okay. All right. So that was the beginning. And then how long after that did you start your blog? I started my blog when I was pregnant with my third child. This is how I remember all my years. Yeah, of course, like, right? It's always like I was pregnant yeah. with you. And then, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was 2009. Well, she was born 2009. So 2008 or nine. Okay. Later. So a few years yeah. later. Yeah. So that's when I started my blog. Um, it was my husband's idea because he saw me reading all the blogs and he's like, well, you could do this. Why don't you start a blog? And he literally you know, sat down and said, okay, what do you want to call it? And he started like filling it out for me. And I'm like, I don't know, you know, I sew during quiet time. He's like, okay, during quiet time. And that's like the whole story of my blog name. Well, here we are, because I'm washing out. <laughs> yeah. So we might as well have the same I blog know, name. Kind of <laughs> I know. And I thought about changing it, but I'm Me still too. Like, you know, it's like, what are you going to do? It's too late now. <laughs> it's too late now. Exactly. I feel and, you the know, same way. The quilting is still my quiet time now. It's it not is. when they're sleeping. It's when they're at school right. or it's in the evening once we've at least said, go to your bedroom <laughs> right. if they're not sleeping. Um but yeah, it's, it's kind of stuck. It is what it is. Exactly. Okay. So that was the beginning. And yeah. were you always in from the start writing about what you're writing about now? Like, has it changed what you yeah, were blogging changed. about? Yeah. I think initially I was, um, you know, making things from tutorials that were available, um, making items for the kids, sharing more about like Halloween costumes and, um, it was personal little things that I made for them. Yeah. Um, and then it evolved more into pattern writing later on. Um, so when I discovered paper piecing, that was kind of where it clicked for me. And I'm like, oh, this is the direction that I want to go in. And so then I started designing my own paper piecing patterns and joining a lot of um, swaps on Flickr. Like th- there was a, a bee that we had where we each picked a theme and we made our own paper piece blocks each month. Um, and I started running swaps. I had 13 rounds of potholder pass on Wow. Flicker. Okay. <laughs> because people kept wanting to do more and I was meeting a lot of people and it was fun. And, um, they were just small quilted items people could quickly make and, and send out. Um, so that was, that was great. Cause it helped me to meet a lot of people and got a lot of people to know what I was doing. At right. The um, so just things just kind of gradually grew. I started getting contacted by different companies to see if I wanted to use some of their materials. So I worked with um, Basic Ray for a while and I designed quilt patterns for them. Um, I worked with Art Gallery. They would send me fabric and I'd make tutorials. I worked with Sizzix for a while as a, I forget what it was called, um, design team on their design team where they would send different um, new dyes and I would create tutorials and projects with those. I did that for quite a while and I think it was, it was all very good experience. It helped me to understand things like the need for watermarks on images and all of that came out of my time on the Sizzix design team. So each, each step in the journey really, I think helped. Right. Because when you started the blog or even just when you started making quilts, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't to intentionally begin a business. No. 
it was because you were interested in teaching yourself this new skill mm-hmm. and exploring a new avenue. And um, your husband encouraged you to jump in and record it publicly along with everybody yeah. else who seemed to be doing the same. Right. Um, and maybe meet people uh, with similar interests while you were home with children. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And then yeah, these, it was just a creative outlet. Really. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And then these business opportunities came your way. And so now would you characterize what you do as a business? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. So I kind of, once I realized, you know, the direction I was heading, I kind of came up with a little plan for myself that I would wait until my youngest was in kindergarten. And that's when I would start working on my first book. So that was, that's when it really became business versus like, slightly income earning hobby. Yeah. I had um, a slightly income earning hobby for many years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, cause I would sell patterns on Etsy, but sure. that was really it. And it wasn't, it wasn't the same. So how did it change when you decided to that? Okay. Now it's a business. What did that mean? What did that change look like? You know, mm-hmm. um, when you made that mental shift. I mean, it's a mental shift, right. really, right? Right. a lot First, of it's my attitude shift. changed. Right. Yeah. So well, how, how did that manifest, though, in, in real life once your attitude made that shift? Um, I got a lot busier <laughs> and I felt like it was just a con- constant balance of the second the kids are out of the house, I'm working on something. And then um, so it's just it's a lot of balancing now. Um, and it meant that I would do a little bit more travel because I started to talk to guilds or do workshops. Um, but that have increased slowly over the last couple of years now that my kids are just that little bit older still. Um, I guess I started to think about things more from a business perspective too, um, how to better share my, my patterns, you know, which patterns were more successful I've always wanted to make things though that I want to make. So I'm not the best business person because if I don't want to make it, I don't. So I know that my best-selling pattern is not a paper piece pattern. It's a jelly roll pattern, Um, but that's just not my main focus. So I'm happy to continue selling that pattern and promoting it. And I like that pattern, Um, but I need to really love what I'm doing and love what I'm making. So I tend to design things that have a smaller audience people who want to sew more complex paper pieced projects because that's what you like. Right. right. Exactly. I understand completely. <laughs> yes. So like I know it's not a good business right. move, but it's just what I like. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so what is paper piecing? So for people who maybe are listening to the show, but aren't necessarily quilters or have dabbled in quilting, but don't necessarily know what that is. Explain what paper piecing is. So it's also called foundation piecing. Sometimes people, you know, hear that term more often. Um, It basically means that you draw your pattern out on paper and then you follow those, the lines, you stitch along the lines and you flip your fabric on the opposite side so that um, your finished block is on the opposite side of your drawing. It's really Mm -hmm. hard to describe, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're block is the reverse image of what you've drawn on the front. It's all done with straight lines and it can be multiple sections. They're joined together to create one block. And it allows you to basically kind of almost draw in a way with fabric. Right. And that's why I love it. It's because it's, I think there's a lot more freedom of expression with paper piecing. It's not limited to squares, rectangles, half square triangles, all of which I like. And I like quilts made out of them. I just feel like I always want to make sure my designs are unique and I want to try really hard not to copy anyone else. And um, so if you're drawing your own paper piece block, I feel like that's a good way to start and make sure that it's it's your own. Um, so that's always been really important to me, too. Mm-hmm. And so you said that when you discovered paper piecing, that's what really clicked for you. And how did you discover it? Flicker. Flicker. Okay. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I think it was actually someone... Um, his name I can't remember right now was looking for a pattern tester for a paper piece pattern. Uh-huh. So I'm like, well, I don't have a paper piece, but I'll try it. And so she sent it to me and said, you know, just look, look at this tutorial first. And so I looked at a tutorial and then I tried it and I realized like, oh, okay. I, I like how this works. And it just, I, I'm very mathematical too. So it, it clicked for me pretty, pretty easily. I think you have to have good like spatial skills for paper piecing and mm-hmm. otherwise it's a little harder to catch on. 
Um, it scratches a certain kind of itch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I love to design three dimensions and there's people who love it and people who hate it, but it's mm. like, if you, it's for me, it scratches a certain kind of itch to be able to turn a flat yeah. piece of paper into okay. a three dimensional object. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's, you know, there's enough, um, oh, I don't know how to describe it, but there's enough like thought that has to go into it combined with creativity, like you know, mm-hmm. will this, is it sewable? It doesn't have a sewable order. You know, how could I eliminate some sections to make it um, pieced more easily? There's lots of things to be thinking about all the time. And mm-hmm. I really like that. Like I like challenges. Okay. And so, um, so you started to do this, started to create paper piece patterns um, that kind of appealed to somebody who was a little bit more interested in a complex pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you got the opportunity to write these two books with Lucky mm-hmm. Spool. And I, I really love Lucky Spool as a publisher. And I think, um, especially, you know, for, for quilting. And I think um, if you're going to write a book now uh, <laughs> with uh, for a quilting book, I think that would be a, a really great choice as a publisher. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering how you came to know Suzanne Woods. And you must know Suzanne, who's the mm-hmm. um I guess the publisher of right. Lucky Spool and um, and how that very first book uh, came about. I remember really clearly. I read a post that Suzanne had made when she was just starting Lucky Spool, and she was describing what her ideas were for the company. And I just sent her a quick email saying, "I'm so glad you're doing this. I love I love what you're trying to do." And she wrote, which is to say, like publish less books a year, yeah, publish high quality books, um, really work with the author so that right. the book is what the author really wants it to become. And um, I'm, I'm, exactly. I'm describing exactly okay. all those things, all yeah. of those things, and like, yeah, and really like a, a personal connection too. And I read that, and I'm like, oh, this sounds like what I'd like. And I didn't approach her saying I wanted to write a book. I just said, I love what you're doing. And she wrote back and then we ended up meeting at Fall Quilt Market that year and just brainstorming ideas for a book. And um, she came up with the title Intentional Piecing because she she had looked at a lot of my work and said, well, I think you do a lot of fussy cutting. And I, I did at the time um, more so than now. And she said, you know, what about something fussy cutting related? And I thought that would sound like a really fun concept for a book. And so we started brainstorming ideas and I knew I wanted to bring in some other things like stripes, like how to, and how to keep fabrics directional. So kind of expanding the idea of a fussy cut from not just isolating a motif, but better making better use of your fabric for the particular pattern and making that connection sort of. And so she came up with the title of intentional piecing and I'm like, yes, that's, that's it. That's exactly it. Um, so that's how that one started. I see. Yeah. So um, definitely an advantage of going to an in-person event like Quilt Market mm-hmm. or Quilt Con, where you're going to be, you know, um, rubbing shoulders with a publisher, you know, just that connection where you're face to face with somebody mm-hmm. and can talk to them and brainstorm, you know, and also the value too of not being afraid to send an email to somebody just to say, yeah. You know, not doesn't have to be a formal pitch or anything like that, but just to say, you know, what you're doing is great, mm-hmm. and I am a fan, and, right, that, was and that, was. that was really all it is, <laughs> yeah. and 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 not cheesy, just really authentically that that was how you mm-hmm. felt, and yeah. So yeah, I just thought that yeah, uh, that, that was refreshing. Right. So. Because I, I don't know if you had heard, had you had, you had friends who had published books and had different yeah. experiences? Yeah, I had just heard stories or read about them online. I right. hadn't approached any companies at that point either. I mean, this was you know, this is before, or yeah, it was right before I think that my daughter entered kindergarten. So it's just when I was starting to think of things more at the business. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay, good. So, and then what did you feel like you learned from that experience? I mean, I know you said, you know, working with Sizzix and working with each of these art gallery and, um, and the other companies that you mm-hmm. had these opportunities to work with, you learn something. And I agree with you from each of those interactions mm-hmm. where, you know, their marketing departments asking for this and, oh, right. you didn't realize that that was a thing that you're supposed to be doing like mm-hmm. watermarking photos or whatever it might be. So my, in my experience, having written books, you know, that's actually a huge learning experience and a huge mm-hmm. growth experience. Um, you know, we, we aren't necessarily formally trained to do whatever right. it is you call what we do now. And yeah. so, um, you kind of get on the job training and, and writing a 
book is a really good on-the-job training experience. I'm wondering mm. what you pulled away from that. Well, it's a good thing. I was already very good about budgeting my time and being very organized. And all of that was extremely important. Um, so I think it gave me more confidence in myself um, more than learning particular technical skills or anything else. Um, because I already am very detail oriented and organized. And I did learn that I had to be confident and keep working, even if I wasn't receiving any feedback or if there was, because, you know, working with, um, Suzanne, there were often like months where we wouldn't communicate and I just need to be working on my book by myself. Right. And so, because that's how it works. You don't turn in, you know, project by project. Right. So then I start like, you know, questioning. I think that's where some people will get stuck to. They'll start questioning, like, am I doing this right? You know, do we still have this deal? You know, like kind of questioning the whole thing. And I just learned that I had to keep, keep going, just end goal and keep moving. And I think that, that that was important. Um, and I also, I just, I just loved the experience because, um, Suzanne let me really design the book myself. Every project that I submitted, um, was included in the book. Nothing was taken out. Nothing was changed. I was able to do all the photography myself because I wanted to have um, New England represented in a book because so many of these books are shot in areas that are not like this area. And I just wanted to kind of have it look like me in the area that I'm working in. Especially since this area, as we talked it's about, great. is so rich yeah. in history and quilts. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like it, and, you know, even though it's modern quilting, it's just it's a great juxtaposition. Right. But I and, love that. Yeah, I love like the modern quilts in historic settings. I think beautiful. It's just, I like that. So there was a lot of experience there too. And taking good photos, I had had, you know, I had to show her some photos from my blog from, you know, prior to that, but it was certainly a new level of stress involved with each, with each um, photograph. So I, I learned a lot more that way too. Mm-hmm. And then once the book come out, came out, mm-hmm. um, I mean, as, talk about a confidence boost, at least for me, I know like, you know, it, it felt, I just felt different. I mean, yeah. I felt like a different person and, um, and I'm sure your kids must've been really excited or were they not <laughs> I impressed? Think they, they more get it now than they did at the time. They were I'm little. like, look, this is a book. Right. <laughs> but I think that now that they're impressed and have written a couple of books, right. now they kind of get it a little bit more, but yeah, I think people start taking your work more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just people in the industry, but just people in your daily life. Right. Because a book nice. is something people understand. Right. If you're home quilting, people kind of look at you questioningly, you know, but if you say, I was at home writing a book, then they, right. they see it more as actual work. Right. Exactly. And, and do you, I mean, I know you live in a small town and people here know you, um, but, you know, peers of yours, maybe parents of kids who go to kid go to school with your kids um do they understand what you do i mean do you feel like they get it or do they think that you're home quilting and what is that actually how does that even work kind of thing yeah i don't think a lot of them get it <laughs> i i'm i'm the mom who's home so it's easy to ask me to pick up a kid or um i run girl scouts so they just assume i think that i have a lot of time and that i'm at home and using my time to, to quilt and that that's just like baking cookies. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they realize not that baking cookies isn't also a job. I like to do that too. (laughs) And it could also become a very serious job. Yes. Um, but I don't think that many of them appreciate like the deadlines that I'm under and how many hours I put in in a week. Um, most of them don't know that I travel to teach and things like that. Right. And how did you begin traveling to teach? Because I know that that's something that a lot of people really would like to do. And I'm wondering, did you start at your local, is there a local quilt shop here in town? And did you start (laughs) there and then expand out? Because being on that sort of, you know, regional guild circuit and then on the national circuit or even international circuit is something Mm -hmm. so many people really would like to be able to do. And you seem to, I mean, I I remember meeting you for the first time at QuiltCon Mm -hmm. and I know you were just at QuiltCon a few weeks ago and had a full, you know, circuit of classes that Mm -hmm. you were teaching there. And that's such a huge goal for so many people. So I'm wondering how you sort of got to that stage. I think a lot of it is in accepting opportunities. I've tried to be really open to that. Um, so it was before either book, a guild in 
New Hampshire invited me to come talk. And I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And, you know, and I went and I just did that. And a, a guild in Boston also invited me to talk. And I, I didn't know what to charge them. They just told me what they would pay me. And I went and I did it. So I think just getting, taking any of those um, opportunities that you're given is a really good way to start. Um, we don't have a, lo- we now have a local um, quilting shop in the center of town, but we didn't have anything like that at the time. So I didn't start, start that way. Um, but it was really with the second book that I was invited to many more guilds and started traveling more for that. Um, and at that point I could accept more, but I never publicized too much about my willingness to travel or to teach because of the kids. And it was just too hard to, to go away. Um, but by the time- We should say your husband works full time in Boston, exactly, which is quite a commute from here. So yeah. My kids aren't driving age yet. Well, one of them is just learning, but you know, I really need to be home and being a parent (laughs) and be a parent. So, um, with the second book by then it was, that was 2017. So it was, um, you know, kid, the kids were older. It was a little bit easier. And Gail started inviting me to travel, you know, which involved more traveling. Okay. So. And so you started saying yes to those. Right. And then applying to teach at, have you taught a festival at, in Houston or no? No, no. I've is that a goal or is that not, not something you want to do? Not, not interested. At the moment, I'm not. No, no. yeah. Um, I applied to teach at QuiltCon two times, and I've gone those two times mm-hmm. when it's been on the this coast. Right. Um, I applied to teach at the Vermont Quilt Festival a couple mm-hmm. years ago and went there. Um, but other than that, it's just been guilt right. invitations. Okay, got it. And I'm wondering if you can share some highlights and maybe some lowlights from those teaching experience, maybe some things that you felt like, some moments that you remember from teaching that have been really enlightening or just been satisfying or, you know, um, po- really positive for you or things that you've learned from teaching and, um, and maybe some, a moment or two that was just, um, frustrating or difficult or funny or, you know, something from teaching that was, has been hard. Hmm. It's a hard one. It, it's always, my favorite thing is when someone leaves and says that they were really inspired. Like for me, that's the best compliment to know that um, something just really hit them and they were eager to to try out the technique or to make more. Um, what's frustrating is when people repeatedly tell me during class that they don't like paper piecing. <laughs> and that happens a lot. And I wonder you know, why they signed up to do a paper piecing class if they came into it with the idea that they didn't like it. So I tried to, I tried to help them, you know, technically to make it a little bit easier in hopes that they'll like it, but it's always a little bit frustrating mm-hmm. um, because, of course, I want everyone to like paper piecing because I think it's the best. Um, right. So that that's frustrating. Um, but I've, I've met some people who, you know, they had never paper pieced. I taught them to paper piece. They got really excited. And now they've, you know, joined my swaps and, you know, bought my books and are making their quilts. And it, it's very um, nice to see them progress from their very first paper piece block all the way to making much more complicated projects and knowing that I actually had a part in that. And then occasionally, you know, getting a, a note in the mail from one of them thanking me for that is really yeah, very nice. Yeah, lovely. Exactly. And and it sounds like even from those early Flickr days in, and now you, you run so longs and swaps and sort of um, you know, online community experiences for people who, um, who enjoy sewing and enjoy quilting. And, um, and, you know, there's a lot of bloggers out there who, and designers who would like to run a successful sew along. Um, but it's a little intimidating, like that feeling of, well, what if nobody signs up for this? And, um, you know, what if nobody follows through and participates? And, um, so I wondered since you do have a good deal of experience in, in setting these up and, um, and making them run, um, if you could share some tips for how to run a successful sew along. So I haven't done a sew along per se, but I've done swaps. Okay. So with the swaps, I think really tight guidelines are extremely important. So I like to, I like to plan a swap just like I plan a workshop or a Girl Scout meeting where I go through, you know, each step of the way and how, how it might work and what questions might come up along the way and try to answer them all. Um, so I try to come up with swap ideas that would mostly um, 
the people could mostly pull from their stashes because people don't tend to like to purchase fabric for a swap. I've, I've learned um, to keep postage costs low um, because that allows you to open up internationally and also just makes it more affordable because if you're sending out to 10 people in a swap, that's that can be a lot. Um, keeping deadlines short, because I, I, I tried extending deadlines at one point, like trying longer swaps to see if people were then done by the deadline, but no, they just push it off. So keep right. the time frame short. So uh, no matter, <laughs> right, people are procrastinating no matter mm-hmm. how long, yeah. Just keep following up. I send a lot of reminder emails. Um, I, you know, back to, you know, keeping the guidelines really tight. I like to try to think about how will the people who receive these items feel? So how can I make the guidelines um, tight enough so that people enjoy making them and have some room for creativity, but that everyone's going to be happy with what they receive because it's what they expect. So, you know, thinking about all those things, um, you have to be really well organized. I have like a spreadsheet for each swap and mark when people send their items and follow through with those who haven't. It's just, you have to realize you're going to put in time. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. To create an experience for this community of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And you have a pretty large selection of patterns that you sell. It sounds like you've been selling patterns for a long time. So Mm -hmm. you had these patterns for sale on Etsy before you really felt like you had a business when Mm -hmm. you kind of had your hobby business. Right. Um, And now, I mean, the... Um, even the combs from the comb quilt, there's some of them are, you know, are available yeah. as a pattern, which I love because I think, you know, the best way to 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 organize this sort of thing and make it worth your while is to make everything do double duty. So if you're going to mm-hmm. do a commission quilt, then also why not make those pieces mm-hmm. become a pattern that you can earn money from also, you know. I hadn't um, even intended to do that, but people started asking. So and then, like, right, okay. if, if demand is there, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. So um, how many of those patterns are in print that are, you know, available as print patterns? Um, is it, is it gosh, a lot I of think them, it might or? be about 15 or... Okay. 20, somewhere in the our, range. Our print our patterns. I found that um, PDF sales are much better for me. Really? Um, so I'm not pursuing a lot of printed patterns. Okay. And um, and the printed ones are carried through distributors mm-hmm. that are in quilt shops. Yeah. And I saw them online too. And you saw them online, right, as well. Okay. And so um, do you spend now a lot of your time like packing and you know, shipping orders to distributors and all of that stuff. I mean, does that take time or? It does. Yeah. And you don't know when the orders are coming. So you think you have your day planned right. and there's an order, and, you know, it went from being, yay, I got an order to like, oh, uh, I got an order. Cause I know what, now I have to, you know, take the time to pack it. And yeah. sometimes it means I have to assemble some more patterns cause I have them in pieces boxes. in the boxes and I have to go and, you know, staple them and bag them. Cause I do most of the steps myself to keep the costs lower. Mm-hmm. Right. And do you print them at home or do you? No, no, no. you have them printed. Yeah. Yeah. Much better quality. Absolutely. Yeah. They're all in my basement and then I have to go down to the basement where it's cold. Mine are on the barn. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And then you get that order from Checker and you're Mm -hmm. like, okay. Right. It's good. It's all good. It's money. It's money. I want the money. Right. Right. Exactly. But then you just know that it's like two more hours. Yeah. Yeah. Packing. Okay. Um, But the PDF sales are, are, are good. That's really yeah. more of a, and, and the nice thing about them is that they're um, passive income. Right. And I think a lot of what I do are paper, well, obviously paper piece blocks. And so it's nice to buy PDF because you can just print your foundation. Right. So it's, it's really, it makes sense as a product, right? It's the easier way because you print it out. It all fits on one page, probably sometimes, I, sometimes <laughs> or you can easily tape it together in mm-hmm. just a few pages. Unlike maybe a blouse where it's going to be many pages. Right. Yeah. And you can cut it out and start sewing that evening if you Mm -hmm. wanted to. Yep. And it also is not very cost effective to print a single block pattern on paper because you have to charge pretty much the same as you would a whole quilt pattern by the time you add in those. Because sometimes it's four or five pages of pattern pieces with for one block Mm -hmm. for some of the more complicated paper pieces, like picture blocks that I have. So I've never found a way to do that successfully in a printed format. Right. Okay. So PDF works better, mm-hmm. really. 
Um, and would you, and when you think about the sort of pie chart of your income, do the patterns make up or the PDF patterns make up a good portion of that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like the, that oh. combined with the teaching and lecturing. Yeah. Come, right. Pretty much like half and half. It's about half and half. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's interesting to mm-hmm. hear for people to know. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then you sell on Etsy and then you have your own e-commerce shop as well. Mm-hmm. What platform is that on the, your own shop? Uh, it's just uh, WooCommerce. On WooCommerce. Yeah. yeah. That's what mine is too. Yeah. Which is with works with WordPress. Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. And, and I find that they both have different audiences. Some people just like to shop on Etsy and some people go to your website. So it's nice to have both. Yeah, I, absolutely. I would never get rid of Etsy. I think mm. why not? It's easy. Right. And it's, it's right there. Once you put all the listings there. You, but once you've <laughs> written a down. listing, mm-hmm. then you might as well copy and paste it, mm-hmm. you know, in two spots because you know, did you sell on Craftsy before Craftsy annihilated their marketplace? Yes. Oh, that's right. We talked about this. Yeah. I wrote a little piece about it. Mm-hmm. And you, um, they had, they know. left my shop. But then they removed all of my patterns, but my one free pattern. Right. So that with your recommendation, I added it to my newsletter as a free pattern oh, for that's anyone right. who subscribes, which has worked out really well. Right. So, so you took that free pattern off of Craftsy. Yeah, I figured why leave that for them if they took all my paid patterns which off. Which they were, they were using <laughs> yeah. and, and you made it as a, a lead magnet for your yeah. newsletter subscribers. Mm-hmm. Much better use of your free pattern yeah. for sure. Help it build your business rather than build theirs. Right. Right. Okay, good. I'm glad that that worked out well. Um, and I remember a while back, did you make um, like Little House on the Prairie oh, yeah. quilt blocks? I just want to make sure we touch on them because they were so cool. Um, I, was it with with both of your daughters? I did. Once you do something with one, you, you have, have to do it with, with the other well. one. So, and I read Little House on the Prairie with, I have three daughters. So mm-hmm. been through it many times, the yeah. entire series. <laughs> Um, I read it all with my son too. So oh, was, good. Yeah, everyone yeah. got it. Everyone so. got it. Um, and so, do you want to talk a little bit about what those were? Because I thought they were so so lovely. Sure. Um, so I, I wanted my girls. Well, at the time, my daughter Lily to read the series. She was in third grade. Um, she wasn't interested. She liked reading unicorn and fantasy kind of books, which is good too. But I wanted her to experience what I had, and I wanted her to read those books. So I was trying to think of like, well, how can I make a bribe? <laughs> and I said, what if? You read the book, then we talk about it and we come up with a quilt block and you get to sew it with me because they always want to sew in my sewing room because they see me doing that all the time. And that works. She was like, oh, okay. Um, So it just started that way. It wasn't a planned project that I was going to be sharing. But once I decided I was going to do this, I thought, well, why not share it in case other people want to make them with their children too? Um, So we just, as, as she read the books and sometimes I'd read aloud with her to push her through the some of the chapters moments. get right they're like now we're going to describe yeah. how pop put in the door for exactly. like three pages yeah, yeah. we had to skim a little yeah but you know we would focus on the, the fun part right. and oh that could be a block and oh if you finish so let's get through that last chapter um but it was really fun to to kind of pick the highlights of each story like Elmanzo's prize-winning pumpkin became a block things like that and um so we designed the quilt. She made, she sewed each of the blocks herself. I did the cutting and the ironing. And then um, she chose all of her own fabrics. She did all the stitching. Um, then I did the final quilting for her. And because it's a small town, um, it got to hang at the library for a while. So she had it hanging there for about a month and she had her picture in the paper. So it was very exciting for her. And then a few years later, I repeated the whole process with my daughter, Penny. And so that was just last year that she finished her quilt. And so I took it into both of their classrooms too. And we talked about it with the class that they could see. And Penny's got to hang at the library too, because you can't have one, (laughs) not the other. So she had hers there too. Um, But it was very fun to see how different the two quilts look because they both chose all their fabrics. And so their personalities kind of came through. Lily wanted hers more realistic colors. So she chose like the blues and the greens and the browns. Penny went for, you know, pink and purple and all sorts of non-representational colors. Um, so I, I got a couple pictures of the girls with both of their quilts too. And so you can find this all on my website up the top bar. It says sew alongs and there's a little house in the prairie sew along. So like I said, it's a sew along. I said I didn't do sew along, but it wasn't intended as a sew along right, initially. Right. Um, it wasn't like an organized sew along. Yeah. It was more like if you want to, you can do here's this. where everything yeah. is. 
But I love the tie into yeah. literature and I love that it started as a bribe yeah. for them. But to be um, honest here, it was. But it's really, it's really neat. And um, and I anyway, I just wanted to make sure we highlighted that because yeah. I really like it. And those are all still there. They're available. Yeah, for people to, to check mm-hmm. out. So, all right, I want to make sure we get to your recommendations. So you wanted to recommend Trader Joe's candy cane <laughs> green tea, which it sounds like you're like sort of finishing up as we get into yeah. sort of hopefully spring, although there's, I don't know, a foot and a the foot and change of yeah. snow on the ground still here. Yeah, that's my favorite, one of my favorite teas in the winter. And so we we buy a couple, bo- my husband who drives to Cambridge every day, drives by Trader Joe's on the way home. So he picks up some of those and um, drink them throughout the winter to stay warm and just get me through until spring. It's always good to know those Trader Joe's favorites, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you always have those things at Trader Joe's that are like, you have to have, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> And it's good to and hear. And I don't get there very often. I know. Myself, it's so it's like what he might pick up and right. bring home. So Right, exactly. I know. It's like you have to go there. And then sometimes they don't have your favorite things because mm-hmm. they're seasonal, right? Yeah, they that's take why them I have out. to stock yeah, up like, I gotta buy it I'm now. sure they don't have that anymore now. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I think yeah. I have three tea bags left. I'm <laughs> rationing them now. That's the end. Um, okay, so you have a daylight wafer light box. And I've mm-hmm. seen these. They're super cool. They are. Um, I always want to, like, use my iPad or it's like in some way to do this. I feel like um, it's got to be, there's got to be a way to make your iPad just like white, mm. you know, like white light and to be, but I, I don't, I haven't figured this. I, have, yeah, I honestly, I, I haven't that. tried, but I feel like, but can you explain how you use a light box and for paper piecing and like what a light box is? So it's, it's so helpful for paper piecing, especially in these dreary winter months and at night when you don't have a lot of daylight with paper piecing, you need to see if your fabric is at least a quarter of an inch over the, the black line on the paper. And so you need to be able to hold it up to a light source. So oftentimes you'll see people paper piecing, holding things up like above their heads to, to the light. Or you can use a window, right? Or a window and it's really awkward and it takes forever. So having a, a light box, which is just flat on your table, providing a lot of bright light, just makes it so much easier. You can work much more effectively. You can fussy cut things. Like my tell me a story block swap um, starts with a fussy cut in the center. Mm-hmm. You can just put the fabric down, put the foundation on top, adjust it just the way you want and put a pin on it. And it just, it's so much faster. I, I didn't use a light box until about maybe two years ago now. And it just increased my production. <laughs> like it was just so much faster than yeah. it was before. I couldn't believe Sometimes getting the right tool is just worth it. Do you remember how around, how much it costs? I think it's about like a hundred-ish, depending on what what deal is being offered at the time. Right. So if you know you're going to, and there's other uses for it, if you're going to be tracing things, uh, you know, I mean, there's lots of other uses for it. It's good for like, if you're making a quilt label, if you want to put lined paper down, and then put your fabric on top of it, you can write and not have your quilt label go downhill. You're going to find other uses for it Mm -hmm. once you have it, so... Well, and it's, it's good for, they have a um, clear cutting mat that you can put on top of your light box. So oh. now you can both cut and piece. I like, didn't know oh. they had a clear cutting mat. That is so clever. Yes, it is. And it, it's really kind of neat because if you're fussy cutting, right. you can see the fabric and you can put just cut right with your there. ruler. Oh my gosh. So that would be a not paper piece. So cool. I'm going to try to link to the clear yeah. cutting mat. I'm making a note yeah. <laughs> to the and clear so cutting what, mat. What they did tell me at daylight is you don't want to just put a cutting mat on any light box because it has to be able to withstand the pressure. Of a of the rotary right. cutting, so theirs was designed. So don't put it on your iPad, which is what right. I just recommended See, earlier. <laughs> yeah, and that would also cra- yeah. Yeah, that would be a bad scene. So Ours is want- already cracked, so it's no problem because my my daughter dropped it face down on the yeah. Okay, so it's it's already ruined. It's, it's all fine. Um, all right, and then thumbing through seed catalogs. It sounds yeah. like you enjoy gardening. Yeah. Well, and as they come in over the winter, it's nice because you don't have color outside and so a lot of times I'll come up with color combinations by looking at the flowers in my garden oh like just like oh this plant grew next to this plant and I'm wearing this color shirt today and I look down I notice that all three go well and that was how I came up with colors for one of my quilts and um so in the winter there's none of that so as the seed catalogs come in I like to flip through and just look at the different color combinations either within a flower or you know in groups of of flowers and it also just gives me hope like Color's coming. Spring yeah. is coming. We have such a short yeah. growing season. I feel like it's like mm. you better get out there as soon as possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the and the plants. I feel like in New England know that you know, and mm-hmm. they're like grow. 
as soon as, you right. know, <laughs> there's a sign that it's possible. But that's a great idea, looking through the colors in the seed catalog. Mm, I feel like I'm more adventurous with the colors in my garden than I am with the colors in my quilt sometimes. Um, I think because it's easy just to dig up a, a quilt. You can't dig up a quilt. You can dig up a flower and move it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if you decide you don't like the way it looks, you just right. dig it up and move it. But with, you know, fabric, obviously, once you've stitched it all together, there's it's harder. no turning back. Yeah. My opinion, I wouldn't right. want to rip it all out. Um, so it, it's fun to play with those color combinations in the yard and then move move them inside. And you use electric quilt to do your designing, right? Mm-hmm. So you're that's how you're playing with the colors before you're committing. Yeah, and I usually just use um, just use color solid colors in my in my pl- quilt planning. So mm-hmm. even if I'm going to use a pattern patterned fabric, I'll just add that in it, that actual piecing time like I don't scan all my fabrics in and place them exactly I just use EQ to give myself the general idea of how things will look and what look I'm going for right cool and have you played with pre-quilt I haven't it's neat I I, I don't know if it's for foundation piecing yeah it might not be I don't think it is and since that's really all I like to do all you like to do (laughs) it doesn't work quite right so that's why EQ is great for me because you draw okay you draw the block and you you tell EQ where your sections are and how you want them numbered. And then it just um, separates them all for you mm-hmm. and you can print them out. So it, nice. it adds the quarter seam allowance around each, each section. So that's a huge time savings. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Wall Street Ups podcast. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for having me in your home. It's been great. Thanks. And you've been listening to the Wall Street Ups podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshinaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. This episode was sponsored by The Artist JD, a place designed to add ease to the legalese of running your creative business. It's way easier and cheaper to start your business off with a strong foundation than to fix it later when problems arise. So if you're running your business part-time or just starting off, then you should consider joining the Artist Courtyard. It functions as your creative business's legal guide, mentor, sounding board, and resource library. Visit theartistjd.com to learn more and use the coupon code while she naps at checkout to get 50% off your first month. Thank you so much, The Artist JD. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.